production. Hello, A Life of Greatness listeners. I wanted to let you know about my private Facebook group called Live Your Life Greatly. It's a space for our community of like-minded people to give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. Search Live Your Life Greatly in Facebook groups. You can also join me on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg for daily inspiration, videos and behind-the-scenes footage. Search Sarah Grimberg on Instagram. Gary Goro is an Ayurvedic teacher, Vedic meditation instructor and mindset coach. He reminds us that so much of the human experience is a conversation between loss and celebration and why growth depends upon the ability to truly understand yourself and the world around you. In my second conversation with Gary, he offers useful insights into how our generation's media that can connect us more rapidly than ever before can also inhibit lasting transformation. We also talk about moving through suffering and the importance of mindset. When you meet your less evolved self, what someone might call their ego, or that part of them that keeps them small or stuck or keeps them criticising others or judging others and all of that, meet that part of you with love, knowing that that's just a little bit of yourself that is a little bit stuck got a little bit conditioned over time so if you're noticing you're going into judgment then go okay it's not about them it's actually about me and what are the layers of that in me and you'll find that person's probably highlighting something in you that makes you feel inadequate or less than i'm sarah grimberg and this is a life of greatness Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Gary Gora is a dear friend and someone I turn to to discuss the puzzle of being ourselves, rising to our best capacities and gifts in all of our complexity and strangeness. My hope is that this conversation allows you to realise that with the right mindset and a heart full of love, you can achieve anything you desire. This episode is recorded from Gary's beautiful retreat and one of my favourite places, Soma, in Byron Bay, in front of a live audience. Gary Goro, we are here at Soma in front of a live audience. Thank you. I've been here doing the retreat, which has been amazing. And Soma is this beautiful property that you have in Byron Bay. But I wanted to start at the beginning. Tell us a bit about you and how you became, you're an Ayurvedic teacher, a Vedic meditation teacher, a wisdom teacher, a mindset coach. Tell us a bit about how you got into doing all those wonderful things. Yeah, where do you start when I'm a little kid maybe? I think my mum always said I was a very wise kid. Like some people would say it was like talking to a hundred-year-old trapped in a little boy's body. So I think I've probably been born many times and gone along the merry-go-round and sort of as you get more along the road of your individual journey, I think you become more oriented towards certain things and away from other things. So when I was young, what fascinated me was really the, the realm beyond all the stuff that we see and think really getting more in touch with the transcendent value and all the subtle things and getting more in touch with like intuition and deeper feelings. So I was always exploring that as a kid, but I was trying to like 
make sense of something that I didn't really know how to make sense of. So I was craving a, a, a teacher for a long time. And the, the Vedic science has always attracted me. Something about that field is just so deep and rich and there's so many great saints and um, enlightened men and women that have written wonderful works. So they always called me and I explored those. And then uh, when I was 21, on the back of a personal crisis, I was sort of forced to do something to find my peace again. And then I, I fell into the arms of, of Vedic meditation. And that was kind of the real beginning of me embracing my path and going more into what I'm, what I'm doing now. But it was just step by step. I was at the time working in film and fashion and television um, and photography, doing a lot of creative pursuits. And, and then in the midst of that, I, I picked up this practice and it just created so much transformation that I just knew one day I would most likely be giving my life to, to exploring it and teaching it. But I had a pretty high personal standard. I thought if I'm going to teach something, I nearly need to have done my work. I don't want to be one of these people who's teaching one thing and experiencing another. Um, so I kind of did a lot of work just getting myself right before I felt like I was ready to sort of step into that. When you had that moment that I suppose like a dark night of the soul that we find that a lot of the teachers have where they then rise, how did you get out of that? Um, yeah, I learned to meditate. It was really as simple as that. I was just, I won't go into the details, but I went through some pretty major shit and I was full of stress and fear and just not knowing what life was going to do, which direction things were going to take. And they're pretty high consequences. Um, and sure enough, I learned to meditate and then I just started to find peace within myself and realised that my mind was creating all the trouble. And, and then it was just a very steady ascent after that. You bring up the mind, which is an incredible vehicle that we all have, but it can also be our worst enemy. And you are a mindset coach and you currently work with footy players and a lot of other athletes and just people in general. And what I'd like to know is why do humans at times use their mind for negative reasons without even realising? We're very vulnerable, like all species are vulnerable. You look at the most powerful animal on the earth, you'd say it's an elephant. You know, nothing can really challenge an elephant. I think ironically they get scared by little mice, which is quite bizarre. But, you know, they're a very formidable animal. Like nothing can really intimidate an elephant. So you look at how you can triumph over an elephant, you can manipulate it mentally, not physically, because nothing can compete. But it's known for um, elephant trainers, they can take a baby elephant and if they want to stop it, um, you know, having freedom to, to think and move, they'll limit its range of movement by tying a very, very heavy chain around its ankle and then harnessing that to a tree. And then it kind of has like a range of, say, two or three metres to move. And so that little elephant learns, oh, okay, I can move this far and then I can't go beyond that. And so it gets programmed with that is like the, the sphere of movement. That's my, my range of freedom. And so as that elephant begins to grow in size, what the trainers do is they reduce the size of the chain. It becomes this big, heavy chain. And it gets thinner and, and um, becomes less and less robust until when it's a full-blown elephant, you can just try a little piece of string around it and it won't go beyond the two or three metres that it's been conditioned to. So everything mentally 
it can be manipulated. And you can see, you know, we just went through a phase of two years where there was mass manipulation. So people can't see their own thought patterns so that they end up being basically the victim of them. And so a mindset coach or anyone who's doing any type of coaching is playing the role of the enlightened observer, which is attempting to bring awareness to what's unconscious in that person. And because we're not aware of our own thinking patterns, we see their effects, but we don't realise like we're the cause. We're causing those things to arise in our life. So that's like the hidden sector of man and woman is our mind stuff. And that's the most powerful and defining stuff. Like when you look at individuals, why is one person successful and not the other? And you can say physically, most people are the same. Like it's not like some people have got this major advantage and they've got four legs or anything. Everyone anatomically is pretty much the same. And it's really how like focused and dialed in their mentality is which will determine whether they are going to excel or not and that's what I love about sport like I'm a huge fan of UFC which probably everyone would be shocked about like some meditation guys into like this mixed martial arts but I'm more interested in the mindset yeah like what is it that makes one person a champion and another person not and I think for me that's just like the most fascinating study study on the earth just like how is it if you can shift your your thinking then life changes yeah everything shifts because that is our great power our ability to think and if you think of like from a vedic perspective like the threefold kind of structure of existence you have at our source we are this pure consciousness we are this supreme presence power and intelligence but it gains expression through the mind and it's like the mind is the instrument or the medium which allows for the unfolding of that pure potential and if that mind is constricted or restriction, restricted, then the expression is, is limited or tainted. So as you can open up that consciousness, that mind space, and you can correct those patterns and flows, then it's like the river's free to really um, merge into the ocean. It reminds me of that Rumi quote, and I'm, this might not be verbatim, but why do you stay in jail when the doors are open? And what I think a lot of people struggle with is rumination, So they get stuck on a thought or something that they think may have occurred and they can't let it go. What are the best tools for people to use when they're in that frame of mind? Mm. Yeah, it can be very binding. Like we call those like a a samskara, which is like a a scar in consciousness or a groove. So if you have a record, you know, old-fashioned record, and they have those grooves in them and then they just kind of go around in those grooves... It's same thing exists in the mind. There are certain patterns and structures in the brain and in the mind. And so it's very easy for, for our awareness to move in those very familiar channels. And part of what we habituate to is looking at what's lacking, missing, what went wrong, what's not right, the dark side, the mess, the noise. We have an entire industry dedicated to highlighting negativity. It's called the media, the mainstream media. And they don't tell you all the wonders of the world and all the magnificent things that happened that day. They just highlight all the, all the dark things. And so it's over time we end up doing similar things ourselves. Like, and I remember we used to play this game with my kids and we'd say, um, what was the, what's your rose and what's your thorn of the day? And 
you'd say this thing was amazing and this thing kind of sucked. And then I noticed it was really detrimental to my boy because throughout the day he was like highly alert to like thorns. Mm. And so I said, okay, new rules, no thorns, just roses. So we get caught up in like conditioning ourselves to see the things or think the things that actually aren't healthy for us. And it becomes addictive. Like look at um, negativity. A lot of people just get some sort of charge out of it. They get some bizarre satisfaction from talking negatively or gossiping about someone or doing all this sort of thing. And so it's low-grade frequencies and it's easy. It's easy fodder. So it's easy as we sort of mentioned at one point along this sort of retreat, it's very easy to be negative. It's very easy to destroy something. It creates way more mindfulness and sophistication and intelligence to create something, to build something and to develop something. So human beings um, are often just a bit lazy and we'll work really hard on our careers and things, but we have to extend that same effort to you know, our inner territory. Yeah. And so if someone's being plagued by negativity, <clears throat> there's lots of different reasons for that. We could say um, there's some that's like that negativity is a signal from within that they're out of alignment or they've fallen into bad habits or they're polluting their body or they're keeping really bad company. Um, they've been watching too much mainstream media or whatever it may be. Lots of things can influence the mind. And like I said, it's super easy to pollute the mind. So if there's negativity, I would say there's some form of pollution and it could be also there is some imbalance in the body. And the state of the body will then flow into influencing and creating a cloud in the mind. The atmosphere can also be, you know, um, influencing our mind. Like just think of the phase people went through. That was like major, like resilient, mental resilience training because it was just coming from all angles it was, there were lots of thorns. And so it's not so easy for people to see beauty and purpose and, um, you know, the gift in such things. But the more you train yourself to see that, the more that will dominate your awareness. Mm. Yeah. Sometimes when you envy someone, you look at them and they have something within them that you realise you can do as well, but you just quite haven't got there yet. But it's good because it's a reflection to show you hey, I'm envious because I know that that's within me and I I can get there if I want. And I wonder for you, how do people who might be struggling with that, what would you say to them in regards to moving past that so they are able to succeed? Mm. Yeah, so you mentioned two things, jealousy and envy. So you'd say one is of a lower order and one is of a higher order. Jealousy is you don't want that person to have what they have because it makes you feel terrible. So if you take it from them, you take them from grace, you're going to feel better about yourself. This is a very shadow, manipulative, low-grade way of sort of operating as a human being. Whereas if you go to envy, which they say is one of the sins, but I don't think it is, envy is whereas you look at that person and think, wow, look at what you've achieved or what you have, that's pretty special and you aspire to have that also. So if you want that, then you have to learn to celebrate other people's victory. And when you do that, you elevate that person and you bless them. And then by doing that, you're also elevating yourself. So we have in Australia, we have that tall poppy thing that goes on, which I think is is horrendous. And 
you know, being where I am now, like I used to be undercover for a very long period of time, hated being anywhere near the spotlight, and now a little tiny bit in it, um, and you just notice people just start to, like, hate on you for no reason. How do you deal with that? Um, initially it was quite surprising. Like, why are these people hating on me when I'm doing really good work? Yeah. And it's because of whatever I'm doing, it sort of triggers something to awaken in them, whatever that is. And so I had to just accept that, um, you know, you only really get criticised by people who are doing less than you and people who aren't really particularly doing much in their life. So I realised they're just reporting on their own state of consciousness. They're giving, you know, a declaration of where they're positioned in life. And as long as, like, I feel good within myself and I know I'm in integrity, then that's just what I have to check. Anytime someone's doing that, I'm just like, oh, that's their stuff, not mine. And so I just learned to um, not worry too much about it because I think, um, like, we, we want to celebrate when people do great things. So uh, how, old, how a whole country has to go from tall poppy thing to being a little bit what happens, like, in the US, I've noticed, where they're all just, like, supporting each other and building people up and celebrating and really cheering for each other. Why do you think it is like that here? Uh, I think it's historical. Um, I guess where the convicts came from and this idea of, like even it happens in parts of Bali that I'm aware of, like there's one guy who lives on a cliff, um, Made, I know him, and he owns like tons of land and he would be very, very wealthy by our standards. So in Bali, which is, you know, not the particularly wealthy nation, he um, walks around in shorts and maybe flip-flops and his thing is I have to hide my wealth. I can't let my community see it because they'll all get jealous. So there's a lot of places where people aren't able to stand tall and proud in what they achieve. Whereas when you look at those who we celebrate in sport, for example, like Muhammad Ali, he was... He was totally outright saying, I am the greatest, declared it in public and shouted it from the rooftops. Whereas I know footballers that I work with who are some of the best players in the game and one of them even confided to me privately said, I know I'm the best. But he would never say that in public. Just for fear of what happens to you in our culture. And so that is kind of means means we don't really get to truly embody our greatness or express our greatness or or, or feel that. We have to do it undercover. It is what you mentioned about living in integrity and all the people that I talk to, that is usually the number one thing. When you're living in integrity, happiness follows because you're, you are yourself and you're not trying to be someone that you're not. And especially a lot of the palliative care workers I've spoken with, they talk a lot about how at the deathbed, the people, their number one regret is I, I was not myself. I was someone that my mum wanted me to be or my parents wanted me to be or my husband wanted me to be. I never fulfilled the life that I wanted. How do you suggest is the best way for people to follow their dreams and not let that noise of the world or the people that they care about have such an impact on them? I think you have to develop intimacy. You have to get really intimate with the you in you. And you've got to move through all the layers of all the bullshit, all the programming, all the stuff that society has conditioned you to think you are or that you need to have or do or achieve and all of that rubbish. And you just got to get really still and in touch with your own inner self and then let that whisper to you, this is who you are and this is how you should be living your life. Mm. 
And I know so many people like that I've coached over the years, like lawyers who have done like all their training, which was many, many years, and then they go into practice and then a couple of years into that, they come and they just say, oh, I'm quitting my job. And I'd say, why? And they say, I absolutely hate it. And like, well, how did you get this far? Did you always hate it? Yes. And why did you do it? Well, my dad, you know, expected me to follow in his footsteps or whatever it may be. So if that person was actually intimate and listening, they would have known this isn't the right path for me because we're endowed with this this intuition, this deep feeling sense, which is our guidance in, in life. Because how else do we know what to do as human beings? Like the world's so confused. And as we were exploring, this is like a, an age of confusion and ignorance called Kali Yuga. So the only thing you can really rely on is your own inner knowing. And we're not really taught as individuals, certainly not in most families and in schools and educational systems, that that is your first place to go and connect with. Like we should be teaching that to kids first. But instead, we're teaching them how they should think. We should teach them how they should be. Being then governs our thoughts, which then shapes our actions. So people just really need to drop everything, clear the decks and go, okay, I'm letting everything go, shed it all, and then just get deeply in touch with your feeling self. Go, okay, which way should I go? Is this right for me? Should I go here? Should I do this? And that's how I've lived, you know, since I learned to meditate, that became like, okay, that's how I live my life now. That's how I make basically every decision. What do I order on a menu? I feel into it. How oh, that feel? Should I go here? Should I go there? Should I do this? Should I do that? So that holds me in like really good stead to, you know, be living in a life of alignment. And if you're in touch with that place in you and then you're in touch with your physical body as we, we kind of chatted about yesterday, your body is like the greatest wisdom keeper you'll ever meet. You're endowed with innate wisdom. Your body is like a structure that is, has the cosmos in woven into it in different ways. So they say as is the individual mind, so is the cosmic mind, so is the atom, so is the universe. As is the individual body, so is the cosmic body. So there's this interconnectedness of all things. So you can directly access your knowing through your body. But a lot of people's bodies are blocked up, jammed up, toxic, stressed out, tense. Like So it gets more and more and more dense. And then something that's dense doesn't transmit electricity or intelligence or things very well. So I'd say the real work is learning to open up your body to life, breathing and moving. I believe everyone should have a physical practice, something that they do, not just like running and whatnot, but something that actually opens up the, the tissue of the body and the flow of intelligence through it, like yoga and tai chi and you know different movement practices and so i think people need to do something that that opens their body and resets their body and then we need to have a practice of introspection being able to go and contact that least excited place in ourselves you know that source field and operating from there as much as we can and just being really honest and knowing when you meet your less evolved self what someone might call their ego or their shadow or that part of them that keeps them small or stuck or keeps them criticising others or judging others and all of that. So you have to meet that, but meet that part of you with love, knowing that's just a little bit of yourself that is a little bit stuck, got a little bit conditioned over time. So if you're noticing you're going into judgement, then go, okay, it's not about them, it's actually about me and what are the layers of that in me? And you'll find that person's probably highlighting something in you that makes you feel inadequate or less than. And that's just an idea. So you want to be able to shift into that 
and borrow from that person's radiance or their gift or whatever it is that you see in them because if you see it, it is in you. It's not, if, you if it's not in you, you wouldn't recognise it. The universe is infinite and abundant, but why do you believe that we have this lack mentality? If Gary has something, then Sarah can't have it, which isn't true, but Mm. it is that Darwinism society where people really feel like it's, they're out for themselves. Yeah. I mean, that's the way our whole culture is kind of operating. It's like, there's only a certain amount and most people have accepted, okay, I'll only ever have a tiny bit or I need more, and how much do you need? Well, the secret is you can never have enough of what you don't need. And so that's why we see all these billionaires who just keep going. You think, well, how much more do you need to be comfortable? And what are you doing with all that? And, you know, I think the real gift is in, in giving. That's the greatest wealth, if I'm honest. It's not about acquiring. It's about, like, sharing and giving and sharing that with your family, which is the whole, like, of humanity is our family, but you see people operating very individualistically. And how is it you can have one individual who has so much, yet in a neighbouring village or city or country or something, there's, like, complete lack. It just, it's this big disconnect between our, our shared connection, our shared self, and even the earth. How can I take so much from the earth but not give back? So I feel it's, it's just a thinking problem. It's a problem with people's perception and their thinking and also their experience. So if I feel separate from the world, if I'm cut off from myself, then I'm going to be cut off from everyone else. And then it is me and them, and then there is lack and limitation, and then I need to acquire and feed something that's in me because I don't have it. So it's, it's about like the individual consciousness is somewhere trapped and stuck and then you see that just exhibited in the behaviour. You brought up service before and I think that's so unbelievably important. I mean, the fulfilment that one receives from being of service is one of the most amazing feelings I think you can mm. you can have. And recently I did an episode with this 78-year-old. He was the Jewish mall director of the Hevra Kedisha. He's never properly told his story before. Mm. And it was very moving for both of us and it touched a lot of people. And the other day I got this book that was delivered on my front door and there was a note in it. And he had hand-delivered it and written to me, thank you for letting me tell my story. I've been holding all this in me for so many years and with your skills, you're able to get it out of me and I'm so grateful. I promise you that was the best feeling. It trumped anything else. And I think most of the people that I find in my life who are the happiest are those who are of service. Mm. How has that changed your life? Yeah, I'm moving deeper and deeper into service. Um, I've realised that's just that's what I need to do. And those that are in service, they're kind of doing it for themselves too, if yeah. I'm honest. But that's part of the beauty because if I'm not in service, I feel like I'm just, I'm just a wreck. I'm not doing what I've come here to do. So it's being of greatest service, which is kind of con- constantly driving me. How do I serve more? How do I help people more? Um, and it's, you know, I've learned the balance of not excluding myself from that. Um, but just doing that dance because you, you don't want to give so much to you completely empty and depleted and then you're 
career as a giver and server is like cut short or you start to resent the fact that you're serving so much and because it's creating this downside. So it's just um, the authenticity in the, in, the, in the giving and, you know, it's very rewarding to give though. Like if you're finding your actions are depleting you, it means that you're probably off track. But when you give to someone, it like it fills you up. Like often I'll run a retreat and maybe it could be a week-long thing and doing lots of things. And the students might say, man, do you need a break? Like are you empty right now? I said, no, this actually fills me up. This is what I'm meant to do and I love this and I benefit from other people getting benefit from something. So everyone I believe is here to be of service, whether they realise it or not. And we all are in many ways, whether you're a parent, you're in service to the family unit and to your children and if you're working for a company then you're in service to that company if you're a farmer you're growing food to keep humanity alive so everyone is in service in some way and that's the unique thing about being born a human being like you're encoded with how you support the whole which is what is referred to often as dharma Dharma derives from the root word dri, which means to uphold. So your dharma is, what is you as an individual? What is your role and function? How do you make your contribution? And it's different for everyone. And for someone, their contribution could be they're a plumber or a gardener or a teacher or a football or whatever it may be. It's not always linked to your job. But it is like how you, what your energy or what your existence, how that up, uplifts and upholds the integrity of life. <clears throat> and we can also fall into a state of adharma, means not dharma, it negates dharma. It's also possible for human beings to fall away from dharma and rather than upholding and supporting life, they can detract from it. You spoke about something earlier which I find really interesting, which is how we identify ourselves with our jobs a lot of the time or something else in our life. It might be someone that comes from a very wealthy family or something like that. And when we experienced COVID, a lot of those labels got washed away and we found that a lot of people were in anguish. And I wonder, people's worlds can change in an instant. They can get made redundant from a job that they've been in for 40 years and they are no longer that big person at that job that they're so used to identifying with. How does one have themselves centred enough that they don't have to feel that identification towards that thing, that if something was taken away from them, which can happen, they wouldn't feel like that was such a mess? Well, it's like the intimacy thing, like getting to know the self. Like, what are you? Who are you? That's the tricky thing. I'll tell you a story. I went to India once and I, you know, it was like, didn't realise there were this, these, these kind of layers to the ego. And the ego is like the separate self. It's not this big evil thing that we want to kill or whatever. But the ego, according to Vedic view, is just the individuated self, how you disidentify from wholeness and you become more identified with your individual status and structure. And the idea of, you know, practice and spiritual practice is you start to disidentify with that and get more in touch with your universal self, you know, the all or the one within all. And I went to India 
And I'd come from, I can't remember where I was, living in Sydney or whatever and had a practice and was doing various things. So when I would walk the streets in Sydney, people would like know who I was and I would like had a really good community. I had this sense of belonging and I was there. And then I went to India and I was like, had this feeling of I'm nothing here. I am zero. And, and then I caught myself in that moment and thought, oh, you sneaky little thing. You somehow were starting to build up this sense of self, which was reflected by these things and people and all that. And it was beautiful because I had that moment like, oh, yeah, who am I and what am I really? And so I just let that drop away. Um, but it happens stealthily in people like you get in a role of a job and then you get a promotion before you know it, you're a managing director or whatever it may be. And then that person can start to feel like they're above those who beneath them in that organisation. And then that's when the ego starts to get a hold and you start to think you're something that you're not. So from a soul level, everyone is equal. There's no one above or below. We're, we're, we're all same. But the ego is like, um, something that over time can just start to get more and more of a grip on a person. And even, for example, if we look at um, the jealousy thing, mm. that's all ego-based. That's separate self-based. Whereas in your universal self, you're like, see that person succeed, and you're like, oh my God, I celebrate them. I'm so happy for them. Because the you in you is happy for, the, for, for that in them. So for the ego, it's like, um, or that small part of us, we want to, and my teacher confused me once. I said, what do we do with the ego? Because I was reading all this different stuff. You have to kill the ego and this and that. And he said, we want to expand the ego. And then I was really confused and didn't elaborate. So I was left with that to contemplate on it for quite some time. I thought, we want to inflate our, like, ego and be more, like, up ourselves and all of that. And then I realised, ah, it's the self, the separate self. We want to, like, cause that to expand into the all. And so I think if people want to get out of that, they just have to make the determination, what are they really? And... Um, you mentioned earlier, like, the mind is something that we use as our creative tool. And it's got, there's layers to the mind. It's a really good calculator and it's really good at discerning things and it's good at imagining and remembering. And there's all these things that the mind's so excellent at doing. And then you have the body, which we would say is the temple. If you want to get more specific, you could say it's God's temple. And it's, so it's something that we live inside which helps us move around and be locatable on this dimension of reality. So body's so important, but you're not your body. In the same way, you, you can't say you're your clothes, you're those jeans or that shirt and I'm not this jacket. Well, no one would ever say this is I jacket. But we say this is me, this is my body. And then we say, oh, I'm hungry. And part of my training, my teacher would say, are you hungry or you're experiencing your body as having sensations of hunger? And I'd be like, okay, I get your point. I'm tired. Okay, are you tired or is your physical body tired? And so it's always making that distinction between me and my body, me and my emotions, me and my thoughts, me and my cravings and these desires and me and these fears. And as we start to do that more and more and more, you're starting to notice, okay, there's me as this pure consciousness that meets these aspects and elements of myself and life and, and then you can navigate it more easily and transition back into, oh, who am I really? Or what am I really? What's really going on? So we want to have the foundation of our understanding that there is this pure thing that exists in all of us, which is untainted by life and history and the past and anything else. It's ever pure. It's vimala. 
and then that part of you, it can't ever be changed, but the density of the body and the mind and emotions and all of that, we can get lost in those. So we want to make our way back to ourselves as much as we can. And for, funnily enough, one of the quickest ways to do that is through pain and suffering. Often we think, oh, I don't want that. Yeah. But you want to reverse that and go, this is a great teacher. This is the invitation for me to release my unenlightenment, to release that part of me which is stark or congealed or is in you know, malalignment. You've got to pay so much attention when you feel uncomfortable. But you have to be smart enough to be able to do the work of moving through that because there's always layers and it'll take you to the truth if you're ready for it. But sometimes our, you know, stubborn, egoic selves like, no, I'm just going to hold this position of I'm right and this is how I'm not changing and I'm not forgiving that person, I'm not doing this because screw them, they hurt me. That's you just being stuck mm. in a state that actually isn't inconsistent with your heart. You're obviously a Vedic meditation teacher and I know meditation is a big part of finding who you are and working through those, those sort of things. Why do you feel that it's so important? Yeah, for so many reasons. I feel like a good meditation practice, it helps shed a lot of the debris which we accumulate just through the process of being on a busy planet and living busy lives and all of the emotional debris and psychological debris and all those things. I think every day we eat food and then we have a bowel movement. And if you don't have that bowel movement, you're you're pretty screwed. Like you got about 10 days and then you get poisoned in your car cut. So we have to like eradicate and release things. So on a psychological level, how do we do that as a species? Like we take in so much information through the day and we have a lot of like ups and downs and things that, that unfold during any given day or week. And so psychologically as a species, we don't do the defrag. We don't cleanse our system. So psychologically we get congested and we harden and then we end up getting bound in a negative mindset where we're complaining or seeing negativity and all of that sort of stuff. And that's just because we haven't taken a shit properly. You know, we haven't learned to how do I release this stuff from me? So every day when you're meditating, and ideally twice each day, morning and night, you're releasing the debris. Because during the night, that's pretty much the only way human beings defrag and clear and release and reset themselves. But modern life is far too intense that sleep gets overwhelmed and it can't do the whole job. So each day we find an accumulation of, of stuff happening. So when you're meditating twice each day, your, your clearing is one thing, cleansing the house. But more so than that, you're refining and developing your nervous system and awakening certain pathways within your brain and body for this other thing, higher consciousness, to start to come in. So I feel it's, it's really good at creating self-awareness. Like any time we're confronted or challenged in life, it's very easy for that energy to, to take us and be lost in it. But if you've practised meditation, you're creating this foundation, this stable ground in you, which is that's where you come from. So you come from your groundedness in your own inner being, connectedness with your own subtle truth and essence, and you stay in alignment. And the biggest challenge, I think, to human beings is just there's so many forces that pull us in, out of alignment. And so it's a realigning method. I find as well for myself with meditation, one of the big things I noticed was the space between reaction and thought. So usually I would just react to a situation straight away. But after I started my meditation practice, before I reacted, I would think about it. And so obviously then when I went to speak or do whatever it was, 
there was more sense about it. And it wasn't done at a heated emotional moment. And even with kids, it's such a big thing. Your kids are naughty, you react to them. And I noticed for me that was pulled way back. And it was such a wonderful thing to see that this practice in my eyes open life was having such huge effects. Yeah, it's massive. And it's like you're able to catch yourself rather than you are your patterns, you are your conditionings and you are triggered by these emotions and you become them. Yeah, you're able to be grounded in something else and then you can watch, oh, I was about, I reacted that way. Oh, I was feeling this energy come up and I was about to say these words or do that thing. So it gives you that ability to redirect like which way your consciousness is going to flow. It's interesting. You mentioned something to do with manifestation the other day and I know that's a topic that many people are interested in. We're sitting here at SOMA, this beautiful retreat, as I mentioned, and you said 19 years ago I had a dream about SOMA. I I knew this is what I wanted to do. How did you manage to manifest this wonderful retreat? It still surprised me sometimes. I'm like, what the hell's this place? How did this all happen? And then if... Because I think sometimes people, like when I work with athletes or other people, I think, you are so damn good at what you do, but you've never studied it. Yeah. You've never, like, read the Masters of Psychology or any of these things or whatever else it was, yet they have this phenomenal mindset. Mm. And so sometimes it's just innate in a person. Other times people need to generate it and create it. So I always admire the people that just are doing the thing without even trying to do the thing. And then... You know, you learn certain, the process and the mechanics. It's good to understand the mechanics of, of things because then that empowers us. And there is certain mechanics to, to creating and, and to manifesting and to, you know, calling certain things to unfold within your life. And when I started to learn these mechanics, then I realised that's how I did SOMA, but without intending to yeah. because I learned the mechanics sort of after it was, you know, happening. So it was... Fr- I believe to, to manifest things, you have to have a felt sense of that thing. Words without feeling aren't powerful enough. So I just always felt and knew within me, one day I'll have a retreat. And I was behaving as if that was truth. And that is apparently one of the things you have to do when you want to manifest. Um, and, but I was doing that anyway. For example, I would travel around the world and I would just start to collect things and go, that'll be in my retreat one day. I was so far from having a retreat. I, was, I didn't even had the land here or anything. But I was just acquiring elements and I was always dreaming up, okay, the program can look like this. And I didn't actually dream the physical place up. I was just dreaming up more of the elements that existed within the space. And it just seems like that power just finds expression at some point. But it took a long time. You know, for me first, I was in Bali actually running a retreat and then I thought, maybe I should create a retreat here. And I found some land and went down that road and it sort of didn't end up um, happening, but it ended up happening here and uh, it just feels like this is what life has, part of what life has brought me here to do. There's so much to life, you know, kids and all of everything else and lots of stuff. But I feel a big part of why I'm here is to create places that people can have experiences that evolve them in. And the Ayurvedic wisdom Mm. is obviously a big part of your life. Why was that so integral to you and your way of being? So Ayurveda deals with health, longevity, how we make the body vital strong, methods of purification, 
um, making a woman more fertile, um, helping with nervous system disorder, like every, basically all health and well-being. It's the original healing science of the earth. It's um, thousands and thousands of years old, this particular science. And so I was meditating a lot and I was growing um, exponentially in terms of what was happening inside of me and also my understanding of life and existence. But at some point I realised I know practically zero about my body. I really have no clue how it does what it does. And even when I'm unwell, like how do I correct it and all of these things. So I realised there was a massive hole in my game with the miracle I was inside. I have really little understanding. So I'd been exposed to Smeavera. I thought, this is absolutely fascinating. And it was a completely different model for understanding like the way in which the body works and how we should nourish it. It was very individualised. It's not like a one-size-fits-all and everyone should do this thing. It's like so nuanced. And even that individual, as they go through the journeys of the seasons, the phases of the day and different stages of life, they need, really need to be adaptable. And they, you need to be highly sensitive to what's going on within your unique physiology. So I began to study Ayurveda and, um, yeah, got right into it and ended up, you know, studying at, a, at an institute and learned from lots and lots of different sources. So that forms a lot of just how I do my day. Like it, dry, it kind of drives my kids a little bit nuts and my girlfriend and stuff. But um, they start to get on board. You know, every morning when you wake up, you scrape your tongue and you get the toxins off your tongue so you don't reabsorb it into your body and you put oil on your body at different, you know, if you, if you have time and you drink a big glass of cleansing water with lemon and ginger and, and honey in it. And so there's all these different yeah, things you do. Yeah, you're getting up at like 4 a.m.? <laughs> Um, I used to, but um, it depends, you know. I'm, I'm pretty flexible now uh, as to what I do. And Ayurveda encourages that, not to be rigid. Yes. Uh, I love that quote. I can't remember who it's from, but it was um, maybe Oscar Wilde or someone like that said, you know, obsessing over health is not much better than tedious disease because that's a, that's a condition where, like, oh, you're absolutely. just obsessed about everything. And, and I've seen some people who are like that. You know, one yoga teacher I knew is like, oh, it's nine o'clock, I've got to be home in bed now, and just like suddenly abruptly leaves. And you're like, hmm, okay, sure. Because the rule book says, you know, you should be in bed by this time. So I think um, I used to be very disciplined and devoted, but when my kids came along, then I devoted myself more to them. Mm. And I feel that's just part of the journey that I'm, that I'm on now. My kids are are older and I've been able to sort of reclaim a lot of my practices and myself again. Um, but I went into bhakti yoga for a while. Bhakti is like the, the path of devotion. So that's what we do as mothers and fathers. For our kids, we kind of sacrifice and um, we volunteer for that. So it's not really a sacrifice, it's a, it's a practice. And our parents did it for us and everything is sacrificing for something else. Yeah, everything gives itself for, for the benefit of others. I know that you learnt through the teacher Tom Knowles and you had a wonderful experience with him and I've heard you talk about him and your face lights up and most people when I ask them about their teachers you see the smile from ear to ear. Can you tell me a bit about your time with Tom? Yeah, he's... um, So I was very lost and I I remember watching um, Karate Kid and something about that film was like, that's what I want, I want a Miyagi. I want a Mr Miyagi. And I was really just in my heart craving a Mr Miyagi. And I just knew that um, they, such, such a thing existed, but very rare to come by. And I was reading a lot of um, Indian texts and learning about that, that guru-shisha relationship, you know, that teacher-student relationship. 
And just something in me was just like so in awe of that and, and so um, like craving that myself. And then I thought, I've got to go to India and that's the only place I'm going to find a guru. And I was prepared to like renounce my life and give myself over and go and find a guru in India and just like see where that took me. Um, and I was heading in that direction. But then I found Tom in, in Australia when I was like, can't remember how old I was. I was 21. And um, yeah, I met him and then I just felt like, oh, this is it. I found my teacher. And uh, it was funny when we, when I first met him and I was initiated into the practice and he gave me my mantra and then I meditated and then I just went, what was that? Where did I just disappear to? And that was my journey into the self. But I remember the first time back, we, I went to his house and I was doing a, the training with him and there was this room and it had all these chairs in it and I didn't know was I was meant to sit so I kind of sat in a room, there was a couple of other people and I sat in one chair and I went, this isn't that comfortable. So I did the Goldilocks thing and then I found this chair and it was super comfy and I was like, oh this is awesome. And then he comes in and he looks at me and he says, that's not your chair. I sat in his, he goes, that's not your chair and then he said, yet. And I was like, Interesting. Wow. And then even in my very first session with him when I was initiated, a voice came to me and said, you'll be teaching this someday. And really? I was like, yeah, I was like, hmm. First time that voice had ever spoken to me. And I thought, oh, really? Okay. If you say so. And then he said that the next day. And then so Leach, he saw something in me and he took me under his wing. Yeah. What was it about Tom that made you feel like you were home? Uh, he's so funny, he's so loving, and he's so wise, and he's a surfer. Yeah. So there was, he'd come from a similar background to me in many ways, like he was working class, and there was just no ego about the guy, and he's just an absolute legend. Yeah. So I get emotional thinking about it. Have you come across any other teachers since that have made you feel that way? No. Everyone has, like there's someone here was talking about Amma. At Peter, oh, and, yes. and so with that person, I'm like people are just like so much love and devotion, and I go and I've met Amma, and I have so much reverence from her, but I realise Amma's is not my not, not my guru, and it's it's just that people have different resonance, yeah. you know. And we were talking the other night, and sometimes the first teacher that you find that really takes you on that path, I had it, and people here at the retreat were talking about it. You just have this true love for them and I, I totally understand what you mean. It's like their work and their way of teaching is what you always go back to because you see that that is what helped you on your path and I think that is so unbelievably special. I'm sure you are that teacher for a lot of people yourself. Yeah, I don't know if I am. <laughs> I think maybe I, I feel I fall short. I still feel like... If I'm being honest, I'm in the process of really stepping into guru mode. Yeah. Um, and I remember being in Bali with a friend of mine and she had someone who was like one of a, a, a significant teacher for her, um, this beautiful Indian man who um, was part of a very like unique lineage. It was tiny and, you know, he got these direct teachings from his teacher and so he was like you know, he'd, he'd done his work and he'd done his path, he'd done his time. And so when I would sit with him, I'd just, like, be so in awe of, he would just sit in guru mode all the time and he would never break it. 
you know, and he's always teaching with poetry and song and it's like, wow, look at this guy, like fully, fully in it. Whereas I go in and out, I'd be the larrikin and I'd be the surfer and I'd be the cheeky bastard and then I'd be the, the you know, the person who's got to direct maybe some staff and then I'd go into construction mode. And so I've got lots of modes that I move in and out of. And, and Tom always taught me that. He said, if you don't have friends, you're sunk, is mm. what he said. So he was basically saying, don't forget to be a human being. Don't, I think that's so important. Don't sit in the, in the teacher's seat all the time. Because I, I know some people who used to do that and it used to drive me crazy. Because I'd train people or people would, you know, take similar training path as I did. And then you'd go out to dinner with them and they just wouldn't stop. Like they wouldn't break character. And like, can we just have dinner? Can we just laugh? Or you want to keep like being the teacher all the time? And um, that's when I feel the ego starts to yes. think I've got to do this and I'm important and look at me, aren't I important? Because there, there are spiritual traps. Like it'd be very easy for someone to sit in the front of a group and think I'm magnificent. Everyone loves me in all of this attention. And then you can become like a narcissist or an egomaniac. Um, whereas Tom is not that. And there's no way I could ever do that growing up with the culturing that I had yeah. in a surf culture and no one lets you like get a big head or anything like that. So I'm, uh, it's easy for, for me just to um, step away from my full power as teacher, but I feel like I'm coming into it. And I still feel I'm young and I'm learning. You know, Tom's, I don't even know how old he is, like he's somewhere in his 70s and full powerhouse, got 10 kids and still, still charging, I think. What a role model for me. You realise you never stop and like wine, you just improve with age. So I feel like um, I do, I have helped a lot of people, but I feel like I want to do much more and that's where I'm moving into now. With Because um, building Soma and creating something like this is massive. Like I totally underestimated what was involved because my brother designed the place and then I... I so oversaw the building and the construction of the whole thing and literally there's nothing in the house that I didn't touch, whether it was the coasters to the rugs to the glass or the timbers and the plants, like I did all the landscape. It was a huge undertaking. And now I feel like the canvas is there, the playground or the stadium's built. Now we can, now we can get going. Now we can start playing some, some games. So I'm moving more into that. And I want to bring the fullness of what I've learned, what I've was taught and what I've discovered myself want to really find ways to immerse people in that. But it's not easy um, to, to, for people to be able to commit the time to do such things. Mm. That's like a challenge in the Western world, like time is very fast and people work and they have lives and commitments and whatnot. And to grow spiritually, you, you can do it in concert with like your everyday life. You have a, your own personal practice morning and night or whatever it may be. But there's so much power in going away yes. and having these extended periods. Um, and that's what I'm most fascinated by. How do you create the most amount of change through immersions? Um, and that's obviously why I've moved in the direction of retreats. I know from my own personal experience, when I ever go to retreats, it just literally fills my cup up. And then I feel, wow, I've, I, I feel good for maybe another six months. And I have my own practices that I do very much every day. 
and they're amazing, but I did feel during COVID when none of those retreats were on and I did some online stuff that I was wavering a little bit. So I think it is so unbelievably important for people to sit around like-minded people. That is within itself can be such a big thing. I mean, in our daily lives, you're with so many people, but a lot might not be the ones that that are on that same path as you. So when you're with like-minded people, that can just open the door initially. And then to be guided by someone and have these immersive experiences is just so wonderful. Yeah, it's true. It's funny you say that because there's this word in, um, in Sanskrit and it's sangha and it says like all the, the great sages and seers and teachers saying that part of your like must do is be in sangha be be in the company of like like-minded people and community and satsang like sitting in the company of the wise like they declare like wake up stand up rise and get in the company of the wise like you must be around that because that is what triggers the remembrance yes like it's very easy for us to forget who we are our essential nature and why we're here we get caught up in so much stuff but those that are anchored in truth when you get around those people, it just starts to like cause that flame of truth to burn bright in you. It's so true. Gary, what is the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? I feel like I'm learning lots of lessons all the time. And sometimes I'll think I've learned a lesson and then life will bring it back to repeat and I'll need to go through some more layers of that. Um, but I feel like when you learn something, like you expand and grow and then life will say, great, now you're ready for the next one. So like everyone else, I'm in a constant stage of unfolding and learning and, um, and discovering. At the moment, the, the lesson for me is to really come back to self mm. and to really like enhance and um, bring about the blossoming of that. Because like I said, the journey I've been on, that, you know, finding the land creating SOMA, building it, and then we've been operating now for a bit over two years and we've had COVID for two years and then two floods. And so it's this whole other part of my life that I've kind of been stretched into because prior to that, it was all like inward. I just sit in my bliss and my peace and people come to me for training or whatever. My life was so easy. And then I bit off this massive project that just totally pulled me in the other direction Mm. into the world of relativity and like chaos in many ways because it's this huge thing that you've got to like think of and be on top of and even the you know friends that have seen me go on the journey like where's Gaz gone (laughs) where did he go yeah and I'm like you're bloody right so I'm reclaiming you know my enlightened self again um and integrating this other part but I feel like life always has a plan why did I go through what I've had to go through because that's part of my making and I feel every great teacher I've worked with they've got these stories and it's the stories that shape us and, the, and it makes the knowledge real. Yeah. Whereas if I'm just someone who like had a pretty cushy life, nothing really happened, like I didn't have to overcome adversity or struggle or any of that, I don't know how deep I would, would be in terms of character and, and actual knowing. So I find often I go through my trials and then all these people turn up and I'm like, I've just been through that. I'm actually in a very good position to support yeah. you through going it through amazing, it yourself. It is amazing, isn't it? I find the greatest teachers just have been through hell and back, yeah. but they have the best stories. And I even also now see it in my own life. When I experience something, I think, oh, I can talk about that now. Yeah. So I can help others. So I think it is, it is such an important thing. 
What is the best advice that you have ever been given? Uh, to follow my intuition. Mm. Yeah. That's why I've gotten to where I am in life. It's just trusting that unquestioningly. Yeah. What's your greatest hope for society today? That it wakes up and starts thinking for itself and living from a place of wisdom rather than conditioning. Do you have a favourite prayer, saying, mantra? May all beings everywhere be happy and free. And may the thoughts, words and actions of my life contribute in some way to that happiness and freedom for all. What is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness for me is when someone is just doing their thing, doesn't give a shit about anyone else, and is just living and lighting up on whatever it feels that's burning inside them. Beautiful. Gary Goro, as always, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. It was an absolute pleasure to chat with you today. Thank you for having me. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free.